in to the Perimeter Church podcast. The phrase all in entered the popular lexicon during the poker boom of the early 2000s. Going all in is calculated. There's a reason you're willing to risk it all. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled A Message Worth Staking Your Life On, which covers Acts chapters 25 and 26. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 26, 2 through 3 and 6 through 18. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you and your people from the Gentiles, to whom I have to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. Let's pray aloud together our prayer of illumination. O God, who gives generously to those who ask, give us understanding today that we may keep your word Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen and amen. That is indeed our prayer. Imagine with me that you're in a foreign land, a foreign country, foreign kingdom perhaps, and you've been in prison there for two years shackled and in chains for your faith in Jesus. And after two years, you've been given this extraordinary opportunity to come before the king of that land and give an account, explain why you believe what you believe and why you are dead set on telling everyone everywhere about the hope that you have in Jesus, the life that can only be found in him. Your freedom is on the line. Your life itself is on the line. What would you say? 
I'm going to pause and just for a second, I want you to think about that. What, what would you say if you were in that scenario? Now, this, is, this is a scenario that many throughout church history have been faced with. Certainly the imprisonment and their life being on the line and their freedom being on the line. Some who were given opportunities to explain why they believe what they believe and some most not given that opportunity. It's been the reality that many have faced, not just back then over the course of history and time in the life of the church, but right now. There are many in, in places all over the world right now who are faced with a very similar situation all throughout various regions of Africa, throughout the Middle East and India, North Korea, China, and so on and so forth. Right now in this 21st century, people are facing this. And it's the reality that Paul faced around 60 AD when this took place. He's been given the opportunity, the extraordinary opportunity to make his appeal for his life, for his freedom, for his faith. And if you've been with us the last three years, many of you have been, some, some have not, but we've been walking and, and inching our way through the book of Acts, not entirely over the course of those three years straight, but uh, a few months here and there every year. We started at the very beginning, chapter one, verse one, and we now have progressed our way all the way up into chapters 25 and 26, which we'll be looking at today. And we've watched the church be formed. We've seen Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And that after he res resurrected from the dead, he, he made good on his promise to the apostles that we read about in John, the apostle John's account of Jesus's life. When he, he recounted Jesus's saying, it's better for you, talking to the disciples, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, if I don't ascend into heaven, then the helper, the Holy Spirit won't come. And, and what he meant by that is that, hey, apostles, listen, the Holy Spirit is your power source. He dwells within you. And I will pour him out on you and he will indwell you and you will have the power of Christ within you. And then he makes the craziest part of his promise was this. He says this, he says, and you will do greater things than even I have done through the power of the spirit within you. And so we get to watch that happen over the course of what Dr. Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke, recounts for us in the book of Acts. We see that happen. We see these scared, fragile, broken, confused disciples become those who are full of courage and boldness and faith establish the church through the power of the Holy Spirit within them. We see them persecuted. We see them struggle. And we watch Saul, perhaps the greatest persecutor of the early, of the early church, the one who had made his life about persecuting, hurting, damaging, and even killing Christians. The greatest of Jews, perhaps, in his day. A Pharisee of Pharisees. We watch him experience the conversion, dramatic conversion to Jesus. He recounts that in the story that we'll be looking at today. 
We watch Paul go on his missionary journeys and those who go with him. And we're astounded at the work of the Lord taking these marginalized, forgotten people who have been cast aside in the Roman Empire be the very vessels through which the world is turned upside down. Not just then, but even today. You and I sit here today. We are in this place today because of the work and the testimony and the faith of the early believers. And how through their testimony, through their discipleship, the kingdom grew exponentially in that day and throughout every generation since. So that you and I are here believing what they taught. It's unlikely, it's unlikely that you and I will ever face a scenario like I described earlier, maybe, perhaps, but unlikely. But if you, if you did, just want you to go there, if you did, would you stake your life upon this message? Would you gladly die for this Jesus? Would, would, you, would you gladly be killed for the sake of kingdom flourishing, that the kingdom would go forward through dying? even if that's what God called us to do. Comfort in this life, especially in the Western world, comfort in this life can lull us to sleep as to what's ultimately important. And because of the ways in which we are so very easily given to comfort, we can get very confused about what ultimately matters. If you and I were put on trial like Paul was, it wouldn't take long, it would be a matter of seconds for our priorities to reorient very quickly to what's most important. And of course, we would think of our family and of course, we would think of our loved ones. But if you know Jesus, through the power of the Spirit within you, you would very quickly realize He, His kingdom, His glory is of preeminent importance, supreme importance compared to everything else. I'm sure you remember vividly where we left off last summer in chapter 24. In fact, I probably shouldn't recount it. You all remember it so well, but I will. At the end of chapter 24 of Acts, Paul is already on trial. We kind of pick up here in chapter 25 in the middle of his second trial. His first trial, which we read about in chapter 24 and, and talked about, was with this governor named Felix. He's the governor of Palestine. And his, his headquarters is Caesarea, right there on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, it's beautiful. If you've been to Israel, if you've stood there, it's gorgeous. You can see where this palace once stood, where Felix would have been ruling from as the governor of Palestine. And Felix uh, was a guy who was formerly a slave and he had worked his way up through the system once he was freed as a slave and had ultimately gotten to this high position of governor that was appointed by the emperor himself, Caesar himself. And Felix was known to be um, very harsh, very arrogant. Uh, you could describe Felix as a narcissist in many ways. Uh, extra biblical sources teach us and, and show us that he was a man that was ruthless. So Paul was originally on trial before him. And even though Felix has this reputation, he's confused by Paul. 
He doesn't know what to do with Paul because the Jews are, are coming with all these accusations against Paul. Namely, that he has desecrated the temple, that he stirred up riots in the streets and so on and so forth. And Paul is saying very calmly before Felix, he's saying that I'm not guilty of those things. I haven't done those things. And he gives a testimony to Felix. Well, around 59 to 60 AD, somewhere in there, uh, records show that Felix was removed by Caesar, which at that time would have been Nero, who was a megalomaniac, <laughs> if you've studied anything about Nero, horrible to Christians. Nero removes Felix from his position of governor over Palestine, and he replaces him with Festus. Confusing, there's Felix, there's Festus, don't get them confused. Festus is different than Felix in the sense that he didn't grow up as a slave or as a poor man, he grew up in a noble family, he was from nobility. He didn't have to work his way up the ranks, but also different from Felix, he was actually a man known to be more on the kind side of things, the more merciful side of things, as opposed to Felix. So as we get into chapter 25, I'm gonna recount a little bit of what happens here. You need to know there's four main characters. Okay, think of this as like we're watching a play, this is act one where, uh, where everything is, the stage is being set, the context is being laid, you're getting introduced to the characters. And here are the four main characters, obviously Paul, Festus, as I've already mentioned, who is now the governor of Palestine, ruling out of Caesarea. And then the other two main characters are Agrippa and Bernice. I gotta tell you a little bit about Agrippa and Bernice because it gets crazy. Okay, I want you to stay with me. I think this context is important, uh, but it, it's, it's a little bit involved. You might remember that in Matthew chapter two, we're told of a King Herod who wanted to kill Jesus, who attempted to kill Jesus, the baby Jesus. He hears from the wise men, uh, there is one who has been born who is the king of the Jews. Well, who is king of the Jews, at least from earthly standards? King Herod. So he hears about this and he's threatened. And so he has, in his ruthless way, King Herod the Great was also a bit crazy, history tells us. And he has all young boys, two years and younger, killed. And he's attempting to kill Jesus. This is when Mary and Joseph flee into Egypt, which was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. And so King Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. King Agrippa II, who's in this part of Acts chapter 26, who shows up here, and Bernice, who you might think is his wife, it's not, it's his sister. They are the great-grandchildren of King Herod the Great that we read about in Matthew 2, okay? Uh, there, there is a long lineage of all these Herods in the Bible that can get very confusing. None of them were very kind, okay? I'll just give you a quick little taste. Herod the Great, as I said, tried to kill Jesus. One of his sons, Archelaus, ruthlessly ruled in Judea when Jesus was a little boy. This is what forced Joseph and Mary to settle in Nazareth, which was outside of his rule and reign as opposed to settling in Bethlehem. Another son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, this is the Herod that you read about when you read about the beheading of John the Baptist. That's Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. His grandson, Agrippa I, the father of Agrippa II, who we read about here, he was the Herod who killed the apostle James and arrested Peter. So you can imagine, Paul is now on trial before both Festus and Agrippa, you can imagine how daunting that might be just in human flesh. 
apart from the Spirit, how intimidating this would be. Paul knew the history of these guys. He knew the family lineage. He knew what they had done to Jews and to Christians alike in the past. And so Agrippa, who is he? Very quickly here. Agrippa had shown up with Bernice to welcome Festus to this new post. He had just taken the reins from Felix. And they show up just to say, as the king coming to his governor, to say, welcome. And a friendship ensues between Agrippa and Festus. And within the couple of days that they're there, Festus has an idea. He, rem he remembers, or maybe perhaps even, even uh, Agrippa reminds him, that Agrippa was trained in the court of Claudius and was very astute in the ways of Jewish traditions and laws. And Festus brings up with Agrippa. He says, I'm perplexed by this guy that we've got in prison. I inherited it from Felix. He left him in prison for me. I don't know what to do with him. The Jews keep coming and they're just annoying me about what he's done. But I can't find anything wrong with the guy. I don't think he's done the things that they've said he's done, but I don't know what to do with him either. And now he's appealed to Caesar. I'll come back to that in a moment because that's an important part of the story. Paul has appealed to Caesar. In other words, send me to Rome so that I can appeal my case before the emperor himself. So Festus is going, okay, I, I can send you. This is a right of every Roman citizen. If you appeal to, to Caesar, I have to send you there, but I have to be able to write up a record of what are you guilty of? Nero's not gonna be happy with me if I send him a prisoner and just say, here he is. And I can't tell him what he's in trouble for. I may lose my job over that. And so he turns to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know the way of the Jews. Let me tell you about this guy. I, I need your advice. What do I do with Paul? And Agrippa says to, uh, to Festus, he says, look, I'm not just going to give you advice. I'm intrigued. I want to hear this man. And so the very next day, Agrippa, it says that Agrippa and, and uh, Bernice enter with great pomp and circumstance into the palace to hear from Paul. And they summon Paul. Now, Bernice, in that day and time, was an embarrassment. But she had to be, she was an embarrassment to Agrippa and to many others because even though she was the sister of Agrippa, there was all kinds of rumors of an incestuous relationship. But nevertheless, she's there. And they both are hearing from Paul. Okay, there's the context. That's what you would read about in chapter 25 as setting the stage for what we see in chapter 26. So in chapter 26, Paul makes his appeal. And I wanna, I wanna point out five observations, just five things in the way in which Paul makes his appeal through the power of the Holy Spirit before Festus, before Agrippa, and before Bernice. Here's the first observation. Paul anchors his appeal in the word of God. In other words, he, he is not at all pretending to come before them and make his defense and make his appeal based, based, based on anything that he would come up with. Not based on his intelligence, although he was incredibly intelligent, but based on the word of God. Listen to what it says. 
We read there in the beginning in verses six through eight, he says this, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul say, he says very plainly, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God our fathers. Paul talks a lot about hope, both in his letters to the various churches and throughout his missionary journeys. We, we see him bringing up hope a lot. And he's saying, I'm standing trial not because I've started riots and not because I've desecrated the temple or any of these things of these charges, these false charges they're bringing against me. Look, I'm standing on trial on the word of God. The very same scriptures that these men who accuse me read and say they believe pointed to Jesus. Our fathers talked about this, Paul said. They, they talked about this promise. Abraham believed God. What did he believe God for? He believed God for the promised Messiah. And as Paul teaches in Romans, it was credited to him as righteousness. Moses talked about that there would be one who would come who would achieve the law for us. David talked about how there would be a, a, a greater king who would come and sit on his throne and it wouldn't be any, unlike any king. He would be unlike any king that we've ever seen. He said, our fathers talked about this. I'm not grounding my defense and my appeal before you, O King Agrippa, on anything other than what these men say they believe but don't, and I do. To sum up what Paul's saying here is he's saying all of scripture, all of it points to this savior, points to this Jesus. All these prophecies that the prophets talked about it, that there would be one who would come and deliver Israel. They all point to him. They all tell a story of a king who would come and he would come unlike any other king. He wouldn't come to take over militarily and politically, but he would come to give his life to die for the greatest thing that oppresses his people. And it's not Rome, it's their own sin. It's this king, O oh, Agrippa, this Jesus, these scriptures who attest to this Jesus that my argument is based upon. And isn't it interesting that 1500 years later, the heart of the Reformation started with that very same declaration. Over the course of those 1500 years, especially those latter 500 years from 1000 AD to about 1500 AD, the church had gotten way off course as it pertained to the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures. And at the heart of the Reformation, one of the very tenets of the Reformation, the reformers said, this is what we have to get back to was, we have to get back to the authority, to the, in, to the inerrancy of God's word. He anchored his appeal in the word of God. Secondly, as we read through his account, he gives his testimony. He anchors his appeal in the transformational work of Christ. He tells his story, his testimony. If you've been through uh, our discipleship process that we call the journey, you know that there's a big part of the journey where we train each other on how to share our story, how to talk about the work of Christ in our lives. And some of us have a pretty dramatic testimony, maybe not as dramatic as Paul's. I don't know many of us, if any of us can say, Jesus appeared to me and blinded me. 
But we all have a testimony. We all have a story of transforming work in Christ. Some of us go, well, I, I don't know. I've always believed. I, I, from, from as long as I can remember, I believed in Jesus. We say, that's still a testimony. That's still the grace of God. He saved you even at an age before you can remember not following Jesus. Praise be to God. That's grace upon grace. But all of us have a story, and Paul tells his story. He anchors his appeal before Agrippa and before Festus and Bernice in the word of God and in the transforming work of Christ. This is what he's done in my life. The scriptures attest to this savior, but let me tell you about what he's done in my life personally. And he tells this incredible story that we're familiar with that was recounted for us earlier in Acts of how he's on his way to Damascus to kill and persecute more Christians. And Jesus appears to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he turns Saul's life upside down. And he takes him from uh, Paul, formerly called Saul, he takes them from being a person who was solely devoted to persecuting, persecuting and killing Christians through the power of the Spirit, the transforming work of Jesus in his life, turns him to now being solely devoted to telling anyone and everyone everywhere about the love and the redemption and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. He becomes one who is so very cruel to the Christians to now the greatest missionary that the world has probably ever known. A Gentile, a missionary to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. The Jews had mistakenly understood these scriptures that they said that they believed. They had mistakenly understood them to mean that they were the only ones that God wanted to save. They didn't see, they didn't grasp, they didn't understand that his salvation is for all the nations, for anyone, whosoever believes. So Paul anchored his appeal in the word of God. He anchored his appeal in the transforming work of Christ. Thirdly, he anchored his appeal in the necessity of repentance. In the, the necessity of repentance. Listen to, listen to what he said to Agrippa. Starting in verse 19, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision that Jesus gave, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. What was it he declared? Listen, verse 21. End of verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Martin Luther famously said one time that, uh, or famously wrote one time, that the Christian life, all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. All of the Christian life is a life of repentance. And let's try to understand what that means because there's, there's two ways of seeing and understanding repentance. So on one sense, there is salvific repentance. Okay, think about that, salvific, salvation. There's repentance that is the beginning of that regeneration of God saving us. And that is repentance in the sense of that we see our sin. We see that we've offended a holy God. He opens our eyes, as 2 Corinthians 4 talks about, he opens our eyes to see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. And we, in that holy re realization, we see our sin and we repent of it. What does repentance mean? Very simple definition means that we just, we, we turn from our sin and we turn to God. And so there's this initial repentance that's a part of the salvation process where we say, yes, I'm a sinner. 
and I desperately need a savior and the only savior is Jesus, so I place my faith in him. And upon that, we're saved by the grace of God. But once we're in the faith, here's what Martin Luther meant. Here's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, yes, repent that time that leads into salvation, but walk in repentance every single day. It's one of the, if the, not the most primary evidences of someone is in the faith, is that they repent often, daily. Why? Because as people who are in Christ, we're being made new. We still have that old residue of the old heart of Adam in us. And so we're still going to sin. We're still going to be selfish. We're still going to be prideful. We're still going to be lustful. We don't want to be those things. We're battling against those things through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it will happen. And when it does, people who are walking with Jesus see it and repent quickly. They don't let it linger. I've talked a lot about that the walk, the strut, if you want to think of it that way, of the Christian faith is repentance and faith every day. Repentance and faith all throughout the day. Repentance and faith. It's, it's our taking steps of I see my sin, I repent of it, and my faith is in the only one who can cover this sin. And he has covered it. And grace covers it. The joy that I have in Jesus comes from realizing that the sin that so easily entangles me has been dealt with fully and completely through his death and resurrection. And so we produce lives from that repentance that bear the fruit of that repentance. Paul anchors his appeal before Agrippa on the necessity of repentance. But then perhaps most importantly, fourthly, he anchors his appeal in the resurrection of Christ. This is the same Paul who would later write uh, write in one of his letters. He would say, uh, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we of all people should be pitied. Everything hangs upon the resurrection. Everything hangs upon the resurrection. This is is why he said, we already read it once, but he said to Agrippa, he said, why is it Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? These Jewish brothers, these Pharisees, they say they believe in the resurrection. Well, that's all I'm preaching. I'm preaching that this resurrection that we say that we believe in is only made possible through this Jesus who defeated death himself. There is no resurrection from the dead if not for someone who does it, who defeats death in our place and he's here and he did it. He rose from the dead and there were over 500 witnesses to it and and it's real and I'm staking my life upon it, Paul says. In the previous chapter, in chapter 24, when he was giving this, a similar appeal to Felix, the former governor, he said it very clearly. He said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He made it very clear to Felix. He's saying, look, they're gonna tell you that I'm on trial because of this and this and this, because I desecrated the temple, because I started riots, because I'm preaching a false uh, religion or whatever, I'm a sect of Judaism, whatever it may be. They're gonna tell you all these things, but listen, Felix, I do not want you to misunderstand this. Paul says, he says, I'm on trial before you for one thing, and it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. I believe it with all my heart, I saw the resurrected Jesus with my own lives. He commissioned me to a life of mission to the Gentiles. 
there before me. I, I have staked my life upon this because of the resurrection of Jesus. If there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. Because what is the greatest penalty of sin? The penalty, the ultimate penalty of sin is death. And it's not just physical death. Spiritual death, eternally separated from God. But there's this Jesus, Agrippa. There's this Jesus who rose from the dead, who defeated that penalty for us, who took the wrath of God upon sin in our place, that if through belief in him, we now, indwelt by him, have the same power over the grave, such that one day, Yes, I will die physically, but one day he will return and my body will raise from the dead and my soul that has been in heaven with him upon death will be reunited to my body and I will live in the physical resurrected body in the new heavens and new earth with King Jesus forever and ever and ever. This is the hope that Jesus brings, the sure hope, the firm hope. Agrippa, oh, please, don't you believe that's where we go next? He anchors his appeal in personal, passionate pleas. Look, look what he says to Agrippa. He's laid all this out. He's talked about that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim this forever and ever to the Gentiles. And then he says this to Agrippa. He gets so very personal and passionate. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Don't just read these words, like hear the passion in Paul's voice. Don't you know this passionate missionary to the Gentiles, this great apostle Paul is not just saying, oh, Agrippa, don't you believe the prophets? Like, no, 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 don't you believe the prophets? I know you believe Agrippa, that's what he says next. He says, I know you believe. I know you want to believe. This Jesus who died for you, believe upon him. Agrippa responds with a bit of sarcasm. He says to Paul, and. In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Think I'm gonna convert that easily, Paul? Paul's answer, verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He says, look, I don't care how long it takes, Agrippa. I don't care if you convert slowly or if it takes the rest of your life. I just pray that you know Jesus. I just want you to know Jesus. And, I, and every single person who can hear my voice right now, I just hope they know Jesus. That's what I pray for. It's what I'm here for. It's the, it's the purpose of my life. I will stake my life on this message. Kill me if you want. I just want you to know Jesus. I don't want you in these chains like me, Paul says, but I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be set free from sin and death and the dominion of darkness. You see, Paul, Paul didn't care about being set free. If he had gotten set free, fine, that's what it is. It must be the Lord's will, but it wasn't what he was after. He didn't care about being set free. He cared about reaching the lost. This is why he appealed to Caesar, by the way. You know, at the very end of this chapter, we didn't read it, but you get to the end of 26 and Agrippa has listened to him, Festus has listened to him, Bernice has listened to him, and previously Felix listened to him. And all four of them go, I don't know what to do with this guy. 
because we can't find anything wrong that he has done legally. And then Agrippa says this to Festus, very last verse of chapter 26. He says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And that's where you and I, upon first reading, go, dang, Paul, you kind of blew it, man. Why'd you appeal to Caesar, man? You could have been free and you could have preached the gospel to all these many more people. No, 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 don't miss this. Paul appealed to Caesar because he's a missionary. He appealed to Caesar because for a long time he had been trying to get to Rome and he couldn't get there. And it's in this context of giving his appeal to Felix and to Festus and to Agrippa and to Bernice that he appeals to Caesar because he knows what? He knows that it's the right of a Roman citizen that if you appeal to Caesar, you have to go to Rome. And Paul's going, that's my ticket right there. I have to get to Rome now. That will be my assurance that I get to Rome. And what do I get to do once I'm there? I get to preach the gospel. I don't care if it's in chains. Whoever I'm in prison with there, I'll preach the gospel. Whoever I'm on trial before there, Caesar, eventually, presumably, we're not told this, but tradition holds that he eventually does make an appeal to Caesar and he's killed for his faith. Paul didn't care. He gets to share the gospel in Rome, the seat of the empire. He doesn't care about being set free. He cares about reaching the lost. Which gives us all the opportunity to ask some really important questions for ourselves. Would you stake your life upon this gospel? What radical reorientation of priorities needs to happen in your life? That imagined scene of being on trial for your life and for your freedom immediately puts things into perspective. Does your daily life reflect those priorities as Jesus is in his kingdom? Is, is that at the very top? The, uh, the theme for, for Rush this week is defined. It's pretty simple in one sense, and that is this. We are defined ultimately by who or what we worship. It's called lordship. Who's our Lord? Not just by who we say is our Lord, but how, how we actually live in such a way that Jesus indicates in all of our life and practice, he is my Lord. Paul said it, you, you may have missed it, but when he was recounting his story of conversion, remember what he said? He said that I was on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him in a light like he had never seen. And in his blindness, he, well, Jesus first says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in his blindness, Paul says, who are you, Lord? He hasn't even believed yet, but he knows that whoever or whatever this is, he must be the Lord. Lordship is at the crux of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. He demands our greatest and highest allegiance our highest praise, every minute detail of our lives is under his rule and his reign. We are to joyfully submit to him as Lord as he joyfully satisfies our deepest longings and as he joyfully uses us in our joy to reach the lost, to risk our lives. Sounds dramatic. I know, I get it. But to risk our lives, to put our lives on the line for the sake of 
of the gospel. Father, give us courage, give us strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit such that even if our lives are never on the line for the sake of the gospel, we would live as though they were. That you, O oh Jesus, are of greatest, highest, supreme value. Lord, may we be like Paul in the sense that we would be men and women who our greatest desire in bringing you glory is to reach the lost. Would you do it for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.